The average British worker puts in an 8.7 hour day. If you enter the office at half past eight in the morning and take an hour for lunch, that means you leave at 6.12 p.m. The average German or Italian worker leaves one hour before you. They're already at home enjoying a lager or a glass of Chianti and you're still there. And that's if your continental counterpart even goes to work. UK workers get 28 days holiday a year, including bank holidays. The French get 47. Germans 41, Spaniards 46, and Italians 44. Brits do work less than Americans, though, who have a 47-hour week. Less than half of all British workers use their full holiday allowance. While the average lunch hour takes 27 minutes. And it takes an average of 38 minutes for us to get to work. British managers have the longest commute in Europe, an average of 53 minutes. And none of these stats takes into account the time spent thinking about work when you're sitting in the bath or dining with your family. Now those figures came from a book published, published in 2006 by a man called Tim Chester, so I'm sure they're already out of date. I'm sure we're already working longer, and you're thinking, 27 minutes for lunch? I never take more than 26. <laughs> but you get the picture. Work. We spend so much of our lives at work, yet in churches we hear comparatively little about it. And of course, ministers don't help. Most ministers have never done an honest day's work in their lives. <laughs> they wanted to be a minister because it was an indoor job with no heavy lifting. They just work one day a week plus Christmas. And they complain about it. Well, a lot of pastors have gone straight from university, maybe, to college, and then into ministry. And from there, it is difficult, although not impossible, to understand the world of work. But that is the world that most of us inhabit. And it is a world that faith must inhabit. The title of my sermon today is Faith at Work. Now, we're doing this series at the moment on this book of Esther, which is set in a period of history around about 460 BC. It's a time when the Jewish people were scattered abroad from their homeland in Israel, and they lived in many different countries, and they're actually referred to as the dispersion or diaspora Jews. They'd lost their homeland to the Assyrian Empire, and even when a lot of them were given the chance to return to Israel, many of them stayed where they were because they'd settled. And this book was written for them. And indeed, it's written for the people of God in every generation. Because in this book, God's people are on the margins. A marginalised minority. And Christians have often found themselves in such situations, and many do around the world today. A minority for whom life is precarious. And in that scripture reading that Anna just read, we saw how a king with absolute power was manipulated by a devious courtier called Haman. Now, Haman is the Hitler of the Old Testament. His agenda is ethnic cleansing. He persuades the king, with the help of a bit of money to grease the wheels, to settle a score by destroying all the Jews, including women and little children. And that is a horrific thing. But we all know that isn't just ancient history, if you know anything about the 20th century. The book of Esther is a story of rescue, deliverance for the Jews. But this deliverance doesn't come with miracles and amazing things where God sort of bursts into history and does supernatural things like he did at the Exodus. The Jews here are delivered by two people who use their influence at work, in the workplace. So my first point is, your work 
matters to God. Christians sometimes feel they have to operate in two worlds. The world of work and the world of faith. And never the twain shall meet. We find it hard sometimes to put these two worlds together. You've got the world of faith. Maybe you read the Bible in the morning and pray before your 53 minute commute. And then you put God to one side. And your mind is filled with countless other concerns and issues. How is the world of faith supposed to squeeze into the demanding world of work? Well, Esther shows us how. The first thing it shows us is that we need to realise that our work matters to God. It really counts. Two main characters in this section are both Jews living in the Persian Empire. They're a minority group. And the first is a man called Mordecai. Chapter 3, verse 2. I will refer to this if you want to keep a Bible open. Page 492. Chapter 3, verse 2. All the king's servants were at the king's gate. Sounds like Humpty Dumpty, doesn't it? Bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had commanded. But Mordecai did not bow down. Now, this um, king's gate where Mordecai hangs around is not, as it sounds, like he's busking or homeless. Uh, He's actually working in probably the equivalent of a civil service. The King's Gate is the administrative complex before you get into the palace proper, which is usually up on a hill. And so he's there in this official role, probably signed the Official Secrets Act of Persia, and he's been commanded, along with everybody else, to bow down to Haman, the latest uh, CEO. He's in, in the pal- The king and so on are up the hill, but Haman, Mordecai's there working. He's in his workplace. And we've read last week that he'd been very diligent in his work. In fact, not long before, he'd uncovered a plot to assassinate this king. And he'd received no credit for it, but the king's life had been spared. So he's a loyal worker. But here, he disobeys orders. He takes a stand. He won't bow down to this guy, Haman. Now, we don't really know what the issue is. The Bible doesn't say. But we know that he's taking a risky stand here. He refuses to bow and it is linked in some way with him being Jewish. In verse 4 it says, when they spoke to him, his colleagues asked him, why aren't you bowing down? They spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now previous to this, Mordecai has been quite discreet about his Jewish identity, but now he draws a line in the sand. At some point he won't cross. And it results in the genocide plot. And what does Mordecai do in response to that? Chapter 4, he goes public. He puts on sackcloth and ashes on his head and goes through the city, right through it, crying out with a loud, bitter cry, which is a kind of classic thing people do in the ancient world to show that they're mourning. And he's grieving for the Jewish people ahead of time. And he comes right up to the king's gate, right up to the office as it were. And you can just imagine his colleagues thinking, what is that loud crying? Looking out the window, someone's on tea break, you know, looking out and they see, what is he doing? What is he wearing? He's got ashes all over his face, sackcloth. Has he become a goth? No, no. That's definitely sackcloth he's wearing. And they're thinking, well, Mordecai's having a really funny turn here. What is he doing? He's getting Esther's attention. Esther is his adopted daughter. She's up in the palace, kind of unaware of all that's going on out there. And he needs to get her attention because she's the one with the real influence. So we think about Esther's workplace. 
She's there at the centre of power, the the centre of influence, the power of the kingdom. But she's incognito. She's been hiding her Jewish identity and living in quite a shady world. But when she finds out about a plot, the plot to kill the Jews, she's pretty scared. What's she going to do? Her position's quite precarious. You don't just walk in and see the king, even if you're the queen. You have to be invited. If, you don't, if you're not invited and you go, you might end up with your head on the block. She's only there by the king's good graces. And the king is totally fickle and a heavy drinker. She's hanging on by her fingernails. But Esther is the only person who stands between the Jewish people and massacre. Because she's in the palace. She's in the place of influence in the culture. Christians sometimes think that God's work in the world is done by what we might call religious professionals. Missionaries and preachers and student workers and the like. And so the hours that most of us spend at work kind of get overlooked. But in this story, there are no religious professionals. It is workers who save God's people. Two people in the world of work. One is a civil servant and the other one is in the harem. Not people who live a cloistered religious life. They live in the gritty real world. So what do we take away from that? Your work matters to God. Not just your weekend. Your influence matters to God. The influence that you have through your work, whether great or small. Look at these people, Mordecai and Esther. Together they saved the Jewish people. So Christians must take their workplace seriously. Not just doing a good job because that's good to do. Not just taking opportunities to tell people about Jesus if if those opportunities come. But also your work itself can be a force for good in the world. There are three books that deal with the Jews and their life in Persia, Persian Empire. These books are called Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther. Ezra is a minister, he's a religious professional. Nehemiah is a manager. He works in urban development. Esther's a supermodel who married into the royal family and became extremely influential. We've all seen that happen. But notice that only of those three, only one is a kind of religious worker. God works through the manager and the queen. Now some of you are thinking, all right, but I'm not that important. I am a very small cog in a very big machine. Listen, everyone's work matters to God. And you do not know how your work might be used for justice and good in the world. There's a man in our church who was a teacher for a number of years. And he taught philosophy, which some people think is one of the least useful subjects. Years after he'd retired, he met a girl who said, you know, you've changed my life. You gave me confidence. Because of you, I went to university. You gave me opportunities I would never have dreamed of. And you know, he actually had no idea at the time of the impact that he was having. Now I suppose teachers are an easy example because no one forgets a good teacher. No one forgets a bad one either. Suppose someone here is working on strategy for an airport group. What does your faith have to do with that? Someone else is training to be a nurse. More than one person. Someone's working in trading standards for the council. Someone's working in retail. Someone's working in science. We've probably got some people here from the uh, research centre where Andrew works. Here's what I understand you do. You stand on a bench 
drop some cells from a height onto some kind of slide, and then you look at them <laughs> to find a cure, cure for cancer. Someone else is working in social care, administration, or archives, helping people with eating disorders, graphic design, software development, the games industry, engineering, or lecturing on engineering. Does your work matter to God? Esther says yes, even when it doesn't look like it. Even when your work doesn't look like it matters to God, he's got you there for some reason. Do you think that Esther, being taken to a harem, looked like a suitable career move for a young Jewish woman? No. It was inconceivable to many devout Jews that a God could call a God-fearing believer into a Persian harem for a divine mission. Many Jews didn't want this in the Bible. One uh, scholar writes, Let Esther's harem represent every unclean political or commercial institution where evil reigns and must be confronted. Believers are needed there. Normally we receive God's guidance by serious study of the Bible. We obey the commands we find. We follow biblical examples. But what if there are no examples to follow? At that point, we reflect. Esther opens a window for us from which we can look at our situation from God's perspective. Your work is incredibly important to God. That's what we learn from this story. How you do it and what you do with the opportunities it affords. No matter what your job is. And those whose work takes them into the palace, the place of influence, should take their opportunities as Christians very seriously indeed. So, how are we going to figure out how to use our work for God's service? Not by easy answers. If you open the Bible, you won't find a section that tells you how to be a Christian in the games industry or trading standards or nursing but you will find principles, and there's one overarching one, and that is that God matters to your work. Back to Esther. This is the only book in the whole Bible where the word God is not even mentioned. The word Lord is not mentioned. There are no priests, there's no temple, there are no sacrifices, there's no Bible, there are no miracles. It looks totally secular. And yet, when the crisis comes, Mordecai reveals that he's got deep True faith. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is one of the moments in the Bible where the light just bursts out. He gives a warning to his adopted daughter, but he gives an a spur to action, but with great confidence in God behind the scenes. He says, look, relief and deliverance will rise. Where from? Another place. Doesn't actually know. He's got no clue. There's, there's no cavalry coming over the hill at this point. But he knows God. And he knows that this God has promised to deliver his people. And he's always faithful to his promises. 
He knows enough to take that information and apply it to this situation. I think we're hanging by a thread. Esther, you've got to go and speak to the king. If you don't, I know that somehow God is going to get us out of this. Who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows is a great phrase. Sometimes Christians are a bit overconfident at reading situations in life and saying, oh, God must be doing this, or God is saying this. Well, you know, Mordecai doesn't do that, neither do others in the Bible. Who knows? It's about as confident as we can get on that. We need to be humble. But we do know that there is a hidden power behind the scenes, a power that changes history, the living God. There is a plan. And that's how Mordecai brings God to work. What about Esther? Well, initially, understandably, she's afraid, but then she springs to life. Verse 16, she says, uh, go! She starts giving orders. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She's the beauty queen, turned trophy wife. And now she she shows what she's really made of. She realises she's got a a privilege, a position, influence. She's got a unique opportunity. No one else can intervene with this king, this fickle man, in the way that she can. But it puts her in imminent danger, and so she says, look, tell everybody out there to gather together and fast. No food, drink for three days. Now, in the Bible, whenever people fast, it's because they're praying. And they want to devote themselves to it. And they want to show God, look, we're thinking about this. We're, you know, clear the decks, clear the diary. We're focusing on you. It doesn't say in Esther, it's part of this hidden theme. It doesn't say that they're praying, but we can assume that they are. And the other Jews are on the outside praying for her and she will go in to this king. And she doesn't know if she'll live or die. If I perish, I perish. Now, only a person with real faith can do this. And only a person... And a person with real faith has to do this. Because there comes a point in your job, in every work situation, where a follower of Jesus Christ has to take a risk for the sake of Jesus. You might have to speak up against something unethical that you become aware of in your job. You might have to let it be known that you stand for something different. You might have to say, I can't tell tell lies on behalf of the company. I can't say that to those people. You may, you may accept the blame for something to shield another person. You may risk your reputation or even your job, but there is a time to stand up for what is right. God matters to your work. Maybe someone here is in that situation. Have courage. Then there are times when we have to use whatever kind of capital we have, social and economic and political capital for the sake of justice. Not just to let evil things carry on unchecked, but step up and do good in God's world to help change the system, help to change laws and practices for the sake of the vulnerable. Maybe someone here is in that situation. God matters to your work. So don't leave him at church on Sunday. See you next week. Don't leave your Bible on the car seat or the shelf from Monday through Saturday. Have it in your brain. For the whole week. So, if you're a Christian here, and I know I'm preaching to Christians here mainly today, how do you think about your work? Is it just something to pay the bills and hopefully feather your nest? Or is it a God given opportunity to serve Him in His world? 
sometimes we make a, a kind of false divide between the sacred and the secular. We talk as if the real action is over in the sacred, what's going on with preachers and missionaries. And the other work is kind of second class. So some people don't bother putting much effort into their job or pursuing a career. Because they think, well, the real action is ministry. Your work matters to God, whatever it is. And God matters to your work. Will you do it for God's glory? At the end of the Bible, we see this amazing vision in the book of Revelation. It's a kind of weird and wonderful vision of the future. And the city of God, a perfect city of prosperity and peace and no sickness, comes down from heaven. It's enormous. And it fills the world. Now it's a picture, of course. But it's a picture of something very important. It says this. Being a Christian is not like Star Trek, where you just kind of go, beam me up. You know, at some point you're going to get zipped out of the world into heaven somewhere out there with the other babies on clouds. Being a Christian is God's heaven coming down to earth and us in the world working meaningfully. The city of heaven comes to earth. Being a Christian should make us the best kind of worker. We're not working for our boss, we're working for Jesus Christ. So, we need believers everywhere. Not just in ministry, but in every sphere of life. Like Esther, like Mordecai, like Nehemiah, the manager who's a town planner. Like Daniel, who became prime minister. Most of us will never be that important, but God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things in this book and throughout history. Esther and Mordecai are outsiders. They're not born to wealth. They're only there by their fingernails, but they act in their sphere of influence, and the Jewish people are saved. So you can move with confidence into the workplace. It is God's workplace. It is his world. Your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. And those of you who get to work in the palace, because you get an influential job, remember Esther. Now someone's sitting there thinking, all right, but you haven't told me how to do it in my job. You're right, I haven't. I don't know how to do that. I, I have no idea what it means to be you, to face the pressure of your work, to work with your colleagues, clients, patients, students. I haven't the faintest idea what your life is like. That's for you to figure it out. And you can. Here's how. Remember the words of Mordecai. He says, maybe... Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So if God has brought you, Christian friend, to this place for such a time as this, what for? There is a reason. Pray about it. Commit it to God and watch for opportunities to use your position for good. Dr. Tim Keller is a, a Christian minister and writer based in Manhattan, New York City. He tells the story of a successful businesswoman who came, started coming to the church that he leads. And after a while, he, he said, what, you know, how is it that you came to be here? What, what got you interested in Christianity? She said, well, I work with this guy. He's my boss. And I was at work, and I really messed up. I made a, a terrible mistake, and it would have cost me my job. And my boss found out about it. And my boss said, okay, I'll go and speak to the uh, management. And the boss went in to a meeting and took the blame on himself. He shielded her. And as a result of that meeting, he himself could have lost his job. He held on to it, but he lost a lot of his prestige and influence. 
And she was absolutely amazed by this. And she went to his office and said, hey, what did you just do? And he sort of tried to be modest about it. She says, no, 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 I know what you just did. Why did you do that? Oh, well, and she said, no, no, tell me why you did it. And he said, well, I'm a Christian. And so as a result, she started attending church. She became very curious. Now, do you think that that man was empowered to sacrifice his career for an employee because he screwed up his courage and he thought of Esther? No. As good as an example as she is, there is no way that that would ever happen and it won't happen for you either. There's only one person who can motivate that kind of change in our hearts. His name is Jesus Christ. Christians believe that the plot line of every story in the Bible is resolved by Jesus. So you could say, Jesus is the better Esther. What on earth does that mean? She was put in a position of power. She was brought before a pagan king. And she risked her life to save her people. She said, if I perish, I perish. Jesus Christ was from the palace. He was the living God who'd reigned on high for all eternity. Who'd ruled the universe. He was, as it were, in the palace. And he gave it all up to come to earth to be born as a human. To live a human life with normal aches and pains and hanging around with normal smelly humans. He too was brought before a pagan king, Herod. And he didn't just risk his life. He gave it. He didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I will perish for you. And on the cross, Jesus cried out an interesting word. In English, it's translated as three words. The word is tetelestai. It means, it is finished. He had finished his work on the cross. It wasn't a tragic mistake. It was a deliberate act. It was part of his work. He finished his work at the cross. And his work was dying to save a people. His work was paying for their sins, a ransom in exchange for us. His work was to bring about a new world in which love and righteousness dwell. His work was to bring you to God. So now, because he lost the palace, we get it. So the final point is that Jesus Christ's work was for you. And that's what motivated that, that, that boss, that worker, to risk everything. Because he knew that ultimately he already had the palace and he could take the hit for somebody else. Because Jesus Christ's work was for him. Thank you so much for listening uh, carefully. Let's pray and then we'll have a final song. Let's pray. Our sovereign Lord, we are blown away by events in world history, the world around us. We can't keep track of it. Uh, life is so complex. Huge things, seismic changes occur every week. And we're so small. Yet we want to praise you and thank you today that you are in control. You may be hidden, but you're not absent. And we thank you that there was a time in human history where you came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, and showed us what life should be like and could be like and will be like. And we thank you that his work was for us, and therefore our work matters to you, and you, Lord, matter to everything we do. Amen.